This is an alternative universe. You see, there aren't any textbooks that teach about these principles. It's dangerous if the government gets in the business of propaganda. We need journalistic integrity now more than ever. Warning, you're listening to the Agenda 31 podcast with Corey Ive and Todd McGreevy. The thing, remember, names are for things. That is why the United States respects the sovereignty of the British people and their right of self-determination. For good reasons, we don't want the government to be the lead on that. Due to the unique division of political authority in the United States, U.S. citizens are residents in every state and should not attempt to copy the strategies employed by the hosts of the Agenda 31 broadcast without first consulting legal counsel. Do you have a license for this? Uh, motivation. What's, uh, what, what, what is my motivation? Because, you know, I'm, I'm not okay with slavery, just so we're clear. As a U.S. citizen, you, you just don't own anything. You're just a, a user, and the government owns everything. And the assumption is everybody's a U.S. citizen. You know, you're going to have to shut up or I'm going to have you arrested. The director Clapper has to leave in about 20 minutes or we'll enforce the crime, the time. Um, the t- Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Agenda 31. And this is your co-host, Todd McGreevy. And I'm being joined by... Corey Ibe. In Glad the, to have you back, Todd. In the morning, Corey. It's good to be back. Thanks for covering for me last week. I really appreciate it, and I enjoyed the show. Uh, you're listening now, everybody, to episode uh, 125 of Agenda 31. We are recording this live to tape, broadcasting it live at agenda31.org slash stream on March 26, 2017, on Sunday, late Sunday morning here in uh the confines of Scott County, Iowa, overlooking the banks of the Mississippi. And, Corey, I'm presuming you're still on the left coast out there. Still on the left coast, uh, broadcasting from within the posted city limits of Los Angeles in a little hamlet known as Van Nuys, which has now been renamed to Van Valley Glen. Oh, sounds wonderful. And uh, I thought last week's episode was outstanding. You covered some great stuff, uh, the, the open corruption of the... The, the barristers and the esquires is is just blatant, and I think he really compressed a lot of what we've dealt with over the last six months in terms of uh, Supreme Court cases and tells that are out there, and I highly encourage everybody that hasn't listened to episode 124 to check it out. Of course, you at the end, you might you, you might avert, avert <laughs> your ears from the, the Pac-Man song that you played at the end. <laughs> <laughs> which I, I will admit that you were accurate that I would never play that on an on end of a show for Agenda 31. <laughs> but, hey, everybody has their indulgences. It's no problem. Yeah, well, it was a big hit when I was a kid, and I loved the song then. So Yeah, it just brings back great memories, doesn't it? Um, so Losing all my paper route money to that quarter-eating Pac-Man machine. I put all my paper route money into comic books. My brother did all the games. I bought all the comic books. Oh, see, now that was a pretty good investment. I think so. I still have them. Oh, yeah. They're fun. Well, let's, uh, uh, for those new to Agenda 31, we still hope we're getting new listeners every week. Uh, This is Todd McGreevy and Corey Ibe, and we are asserting that the only way to hold GovCo accountable in the various ways that it is run amok and out of control is to reinstate the Article 4, Section 2, uh, portion of the U.S. Constitution, which references the people of the several states. That that 
citizenship, that status of state citizenship is uh, the pathway to enforcement. And uh, without that, you, you have no rights. Your rights are, are uh, phantom rights. They are uh, faux rights. They are civil rights. And there's a lot of pushback out there, Corey, uh, amongst my own family and friends on this uh, that you know do follow and are, are dutifully listening to us. But they, they just it, it, they, it's hard to get over the hump. They're saying we haven't provided enough evidence that this administrative rule, this that that the that the powers that be are read in. For, we'll use a cop on the street as a for instance. Uh, I'll assert that 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 policemen uh, and women are are read in to the degree that they are told that U.S. citizens must, upon demand, because of statute, provide you their date of birth, their first, middle, last name, and their social security number. And if they don't, then you can open an investigation and they can be uh, found guilty on on the fly. You can arrest them and allege that they are interfering with official acts. And there's different terms for that throughout every state. But the statutory administrative application uh, of that, that uh, assertion is part and parcel to how law enforcement is read in. And the pushback I get on that is, well, they don't understand all the details you and Corey are talking about. And I'm like, well, I don't care if they understand it. They're told that you get to treat people like chattel. Right, right. End of story. What, what the background is doesn't matter to me. This, yeah, is, well, this is the result. And why are they told they get to be treated like chattel? Well, let's go back to 1933 and experimental jurisprudence. Let's go back to man or other animals from 1906. This is why. This body of, of, of treatment of U.S. citizenship is part of the reason why they are told to act like they act. Yeah, and they, they play to their egos. You, do you remember the audio file from when I got pulled over in Irvine when I had the Mercedes and the California exempt license plates. Sure. Um, you know, the one comment I asked the officer, are you familiar with California vehicle code two one zero five two? And he said, no, I'd never heard of it. <laughs> and that's, that's the code that says what, who the vehicle code applies to. And I have yet when I, whenever I've had a conversation with anybody in law enforcement, government or anything, if I've ever posed them or when I have posed this question, Nobody has ever been able to explain how the connection is made between being a resident of California and having to have a driver's license. In the vehicle code, it says that a driver's license is applicable to government employees. In fact, um, we can look it up real quick if you want. But no, the, it's, uh, it's, it's well documented in yeah. the California code. And, and let me put a pause on, on your trajectory sure. just for a moment because I, I've had some – uh, I spent some time with uh, Tim from Illinois recently, one yeah. of our one yeah. of our fans and, and producers, and and he's unequivocally um, opposed to what we're saying at this point. In 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 regards to, he asserts that 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 the U.S. citizenship is not the political injury that we claim it to be. That it is part and parcel that it coexists with state citizenship. That the two exist uh, co equally, and that the reason that there are uh, uh, violations of our rights or that there are these uh, incremental um, uh, abuses of, of so-called secured rights is because of statutes and that statutes are proper and that the people have laid down and allowed statutes that violate their rights to be implemented. And it's because the people aren't engaged in their own government that we have the problem, not because of administrative overlord trickery. Oh, well, I have a great way to test that. Okay. There's a great way to test that theory. 
at least here in California, I'm sure it's the same in Illinois. You'll f- just find a statute that would otherwise violate the Fourth Amendment. One of them that comes to mind here in California is the, in the vehicle code. It says that any automobile um, that is on the streets that doesn't display license plates can be towed. They can just take it and you don't get it back until you get it registered. And when you register it, you have to register it as a motor vehicle, yet the code says any automobile, right? So if you go into federal court, there's a whole provision. It's actually fairly simple. It's right on the civil cover sheet. You go into federal court and challenge the constitutionality of whatever statute that you want to pick. This is super low risk. There's absolutely no risk in doing this, and it's not that difficult. But if you go in there and say, hey, this statute is unconstitutional because and, – and I've got tons of uh, court cases that will support the idea that licensing your automobile is not a requirement, that it is private property, and that if you're using it for – non-commercial purposes in an interstate setting, then the federal government would have no basis at all as far as uh, requiring a registration. But if you're not using your automobile for commercial purposes in any respect, that makes it much easier. Go into federal court and say, hey, I, uh, I don't, this, I'm challenging the constitutionality of this statute. One of the key elements in being able to challenge the constitutionality of a statute is you must have standing. So that is a very quick way that Tim or anybody else who thinks that there is no difference between you, there's no political injury to U.S. citizenship, see if you have standing. Give it a shot. There's a ton of people that don't have standing. So, I, I mean, I, I, well, that, that is a very it, quick way to cut right to the chase as to whether or not there's a political injury with U.S. citizenship or not. And have you, have you attempted this very experiment? No, but I've read of other people who have, and I don't want to repeat the mistake. I mean, mm-hmm. there's just no standing. They've, they've so, tried this, and they've been told, you have no standing. Your case has no merit. Go away. And they don't even listen to the case. Right, right. Right? right. So, it, it's yet... There are people who are U.S. citizens that do get statutes overturned. I'll give you an example. One of them is based on the Second Amendment. There was recently a change here in California where um, the the gun control laws here are crazy. They want your firstborn son. You have to give blood. I mean, it's just crazy how much uh, info they want in order to do a background check. Plus, you have to wait 10 days to to get your gun. So uh, as a U.S. citizen... You go in and you fill out all that paperwork and then they decide whether or not you're going to have the privilege of being able to hold a firearm or own a firearm. Well, not really own it, but you get to be the holder in due course until the government says otherwise. Well, if you wanted to go buy a second gun, you would have to go through that whole process all over again. And so a U.S. citizen went into federal court. He didn't challenge whether or not the state had authority to require you to apply for a license to buy a gun and the initial 10-day waiting period, what he said was that second 10-day waiting period served no purpose. The government already knows who you are. And he won. But he didn't win. And he didn't win on the Second Amendment. He won, comp- he won on the idea that the Second Amendment gives U.S. citizens 
the ability to apply for a gun, but that the government has no no obligation to order a new one. But if they do give you the permission to care, to own a firearm, they can't require you to ask for that permission and go through the same background check again because they already have everything on file. And they can do an instant background check based on what the information they already have. And if you can't buy a new gun, then they have to take away your old gun. So it, it, that was a fascinating case because they even talked about having to articulate it in such a way that they would have standing. And so that's a great Well, the U.S. citizen just- had standing to, to enforce common sense within the administrative. I mean, he still had to ask permission to have a gun. Yeah, he's... I mean, he still has to ask permission and still has to go through the whole process it's of like, the background check and everything else. They just can't make you do it for every single gun that you buy subsequent right. from that. We're going to dig right? the blade in deep and, and, and cut you politically, but we can't dig any deeper once we've cut once. Yeah, once we've you know? cut and said it's over with and you get your reward, after yeah. that you can apply again. But they still do the background check. What they do is just reaffirm the records they currently have. And it was clearly just a money grab. I mean, the the fees, all the people that were getting oh, yeah. paid to do the background check, oh, yeah. everything else, that was just a money grab. And a federal judge supported the U.S. citizen who challenged um, uh, that statute. So that, that's what I'm saying. Whoa. It's a very quick... Well, and, I need to bone I have, up. I need honestly, to... I have yet, Todd, for... Because uh, what's the uh, Red Amendment guy? Keep uh, L.B. Bork. L.B. Bork. L.B. Bork, yeah. So I've had that same uh, conversation with a lot of people who are fans and really promote L.B. Bork's position. And I have yet to have anybody come back and say, no, nah, Corey, you're wrong. I went and challenged it and I won. And right. no, it's, it's really pretty simple. To me, it seems like a complete waste of time. But if you really do believe well, that there is not a political injury... With I need U.S. citizenship. Pick something and challenge. And, and maybe the nuance here is that that, that U.S. citizenship, uh, in and of itself, uh, is not injurious, but the statutes that come with it are. Perhaps now that, I'm going to table that for a second. I we need to I need to do a deeper dive on what the meaning of statute is. Tim asserts that the Magna Carta, in and of itself, is a statute. And well, you know, I, that's I don't a, know how that would happen because the Magna Carta was a fundamental change in government. And and the Magna Carta, like you could have statutes that were built based on the authority of the Magna Carta. The Magna Carta was not built based on the authority of a statute. But I've never heard anybody argue that the Magna Carta is a form of like, he w- statutory. He went into law. you know it was the, the 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 provision that if if the uh, uh, the the not mixing and matching Bob Schultz talking about Magna Carta. My apologies. Let me go back to the license plate statute and your your okay. your. I think the, the 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 thread that's worth following here is that while you may not have standing to uh, thwart that statute about the license plates, as you just talked about, and that's the proof of concept, that the argument would go, but the reason you don't have standing is because it was already made a law. And, I, and just follow me with me for a second on this. It was already made a statute. And where I'm going with this is, some people probably believe, well, what's wrong with license plates? Don't you want to have them? They're good. They're, we can track the people, and we can understand if they get stolen, and you know all these different benefits, if you will, of them. And you just don't want to go along to get along in a, an open society, Corey, and we've gone down that path. Where I'm going with this is, that is a pure democracy, is what that is. We want to vote in, we want to have a statute that does violate the uh, uh, rights that are secured by the Fourth Amendment, 
And we're going to do it because more than 51% want to do it. And what I said to Tim was, you're going down, when you follow that thread I just explained, that statutes should stand because they got voted in, then you are totally in pure democracy land. And the Constitution doesn't even have the word democracy in it. And the federal government guarantees a Republican form of government in the several states. That's where we stand on. That's 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 the 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 island that we're trying to the hill we're we, we'll you know don't want to need to die on that hill but that's the hill we're climbing is the guarantee of a republic. Forget this. So I when I hear statute, I hear democracy. Well, it, that's what it is. I mean, but even in the republic, there there would be statute like if if we were operating off the eighteen forty nine Constitution of California, there would still be uh, well at the time there was what was called a political code. Th- there were still codes. And, you know, the, the legislation or the legislators, you got to watch out. They're all, no matter who's in office. <coughs> Sorry, I've been fighting a cough for a month and a half now. Um, no matter who's in office, you should never trust them. And just because they put together a statute doesn't mean that that statute is constitutional. I mean, I go back to that con- that conversation I had over a few beers up in Fort Hood with uh, the uh, the city official that I met up there. And, you know, his statement was, well, what we normally do is it's called inoculating the public. We'll put a statute out there that we know wouldn't really stand a test in court. and But we let it sit for five years. After five years, we start issuing warnings. And then... Then we move to enforcement, but we got to let it sit for a while. But you're making so Tim's point, Corey. You're, you're making Tim's point that the public doesn't get involved, even though you're a U.S. citizen. You have the opportunity to get involved at the origin of that that uh, uh, sleight well, of Tim's hand. N- Tim's not wrong about the public getting involved. That the public getting involved and whether or not a statute is constitutional or not are two completely separate issues. And he's a hundred percent on as far as people not getting involved. And I'll make his point all day long on that. Mm-hmm. But the difference is there are certain statutes that a U.S. citizen does not have standing to say it's unconstitutional, despite on its face appearing to be unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the thing that I'm getting at is you can have all these court cases that, you know, granted they're older court cases, but you can, you can do what's called uh, shepherdizing. Mm-hmm. There, are, um, there is just a plethora of of court cases that show a automobile is an essential piece of property like a cow or like a horse or any other piece of equipment to maintain a home. And many of those have, have some of them have not even been impacted negatively, but many of them have, are completely, you know, standing. They're valid, valid decisions that can be referenced, but they were done under a, a different, mindset the people who brought the case were were thinking differently so i i can't for at the moment my brain is just completely drawing a blank on which cases they are but we've got the uh uh sorry a cough break <laughs> we've, we've got the um uh the the booklet and we i've put it on the website in fact i'll let me write it down i'll get it for the notes for today and it's it's a very well put together kind of treatise on all sorts of automobile legislation that would show over and over and over again that you don't need a license to be able to, you know, 
go to the store to get supplies in your private automobile. That has been held as correct over and over again. What, um, What's the name of that book? Uh, I think it's called The Right to Travel. Mm-hmm. It, it might be on the website. Yep, um, it is. Yeah, okay. Yep. It's just chock full of all sorts of references that, you know, with a little bit of time in the law library, anybody can challenge any one of these. You just go in and, and do a quick shepherdizing. But you, you make it sound it so simple, Corey. I mean, if, if, it's, if it's already in the can, why, why, are you, why are we having so much issue with uh, plastic identity cards? Why can't we travel freely? Well, because one thing has never happened yet, Todd. The people who won those court cases had never signed up for Social Security. They had never gotten a driver's license. It was at a time period. Now, you and I both have had driver's licenses. We have them now. We signed up for Social Security. You know, we're talking multiple generations later. And one thing that has never happened in our country's history that I'm aware of is somebody who has signed up to be as chattel for the federal government and one of its administrative divisions decides I no longer want to be a part of it. As far as social security, I'm very confident that in the Supreme Court, you can get out from under it. In other words, once you sign up, it's not a forever document because it violates so many uh, portions of the Constitution, but only if you declare that you are a, uh, well, declare and defend that you're a citizen of one of the several states. If you're a citizen of the United States, you're, it doesn't matter where your domicile is, you're, and it doesn't matter whether or not you want a social security number, you're getting one. Um, so that that's the part that has not happened. But as far as, it, let's say Tim was correct, I'd actually rather, I, I would find it much easier, like, like Tim's position that, hey, the only problem is statutory law. Well, in a way, he's right. I can see why that could be right. Go back to, you know, prior to the federal government leaving the gold standard and maybe right after the Civil War and look at the way these, uh, within the, you know, 30 or 40 years after the Civil War, the federal government and its administrative divisions pretty much mirrored what the original republic was. They used gold and silver to pay all their bills. You can look at the way the constitutions were for, at least for California, And way back then, the California Constitution was much closer to the Constitution of the original republic, even though that's not what it was, right? Um, But if it operates the same way, then who cares, right? If you're if if you're um, if if you're in an environment where the federal government is behaving, and you're able to do that by getting U.S. citizens involved and go to court and get statutes changed, then the outcome is the same except it's not permanent. It, it, can, it can always just be changed by statute. Here in California, the, uh, uh, the, traffic, li- the uh, traffic cameras, those were found unconstitutional because you couldn't pull into court the, you know, the, the engineer that designed one of the chips or you know, the different people that would be involved in actually creating this camera that was the camera that was finding you guilty of a traffic crime. So that, that was found to be unconstitutional. What, what happened was, red, I think it's called Red Flex, if, if I can't, I may have the company wrong, but it's basically an Australian company. They paid an attorney 2500 bucks to write up a, um, uh, a constitutional provision. I forgot the exact term for it, but basically write up a proposition 
then they dumped several million dollars into you know this whole safety campaign of how important it is to make the roads safe when in fact red light cameras make the roads less safe i'll cover that in a second but they were able to change the statutory laws regarding traffic um violations that that part where you get to face your accuser oh by statute that doesn't count anymore right so now the red light cameras even though they were just found unconstitutional in this system uh, within six months they just changed the statutes to where now you can't even uh you you can't use that this camera which have they've been proven to have been manipulated san diego got caught manipulating red light cameras to where the camera would make it look like you were crossing through on a red but in fact you were crossing through on a yellow that was after they shortened the yellow time period to catch more people on red lights you know i mean but you weren't allowed to um uh, call anybody in as a witness regarding the camera that's how it is now it it's it's crazy. It's the rules for us, rules for them syndrome. And, exactly. And the hump that, that the critics of our, of our theories are having is that just because you avert Article 4 state citizenship doesn't mean that that circumstance you just explained, Corey, will be any different. It's just, they, they, don't, they have no proof that, that by becoming the Article 4 state citizen or asserting it or averring it or getting recognition as it will change that dynamic you just explained. And I, my point to them is, understood. I, I get that. And, and, and Corey has been you know, trying. And many of us have been prepared to go down that path without a plastic identity card. We've all, you know, many of us have also determined that, you know, there's low risk, high reward. We have to, we have to be able to carry on here. Uh, but where I'm, what, I, what I point out to him is, hey, you are a practicing Catholic, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you believe that there was a Virgin Mary, right? That, 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 that Jesus was, you know, born without, was, was an immaculate conception. There was no intercourse, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> you have your faith about that, which, you know, some of us disagree with. And I have my faith that this administrative overlay is what's keeping us down. So well, pick which faith you want, you know? There's, there's more than faith, Todd. I mean, you, you take that administrative overlay and go back to a court case. It was a tax case of Frank Bruchaber uh, versus the United States. And, you know, that this, this is a case that really works in our favor as far as saying, oh, you just don't want to pay income taxes. No, that, you, it, this shows that even state citizens in certain scenarios would have to pay an income tax. Frank Bruchaber declared himself to be a citizen of... I, uh, I think it, he said New York or New Jersey and a resident of, the, of a borough within that state. It was one of those two states. I apologize for not knowing exactly which one it was. But um, the IRS at the time, because he had earned income from an investment in a railroad, they, they were declaring that he had to pay taxes because he was a U.S. citizen. He went in and said, no, I don't have to pay any taxes at all. I'm, I'm a, he didn't say a state citizen, but he basically averred article four citizenship done in a different manner because at the time he was just telling the truth. That's what he was doing. It, it appears he didn't have a social security number. Um, I forgot the date of this, but it was early on with social security and the court found in his favor, but he still had to pay the income tax. The reason why he had to pay the income tax is not because he was a U.S. citizen. If you're a U.S. citizen 
it doesn't matter where you derive your income. You could derive your income solely in Mexico and still have to pay income tax. That That's because you're the U.S. citizen. If you're not a U.S. citizen, but you derive your income from a U.S. source, then there are still taxes that have to be paid on that. Yeah, and you know this is not a, there. There are uh, lawful taxes that that are due even for the people of several states. And right, sorry, I had a cough break there. But what yeah. here's here's the thing with Frank Bruchaber is he was then declared, and the IRS had to create a new status. He was declared a non-resident alien for purposes of taxes, and then they were able to tax him because the source of that income was from a United States source. So break that down a little bit, that Frank Bruchaber, who is obviously born, he's an American, he's what everybody would say is a U.S. citizen, but the IRS and the federal courts found him to be a non-resident alien. Non-resident, that means he's not a resident, right? Non-resident, he's not a resident, and he was alien to the federal government. And that fits right in. Scott sent us that email. I don't know if you saw that. Uh, Scott sent an email and he, he said, uh, what would lawyers say if you showed them this? Did you see that email by I chance? I sure did. I sure did. Yeah. He, and he just cites three cases that are so clear. It says there is in our political system a government of each of the several states and a government of the United States. Each is distinct from the other and has citizens of its own. That's U.S. v. Cruikshank. That court case occurred at a time period before many of the states were literally overthrown and began to be run under the 14th Amendment. So in that particular case, that was one of the several states operating its government, unlike there are none of them operating today, not a single one. But that was at a time when one of the several states was operating. Another court case that he said, this was uh, McDonald v. State, one may be a citizen of a state and yet not a citizen of the United States. That's Thomason v. State. That's, a, that's an interesting statement because you look at like the, uh, the U.S. Constitution and it refers to citizens of the United States. That's that homograph. When they're referring in this court case to citizen of the United States, they're referring to the federal government, not to the union of states. The federal government operates <clears throat> in every single state, it has citizens of its own, and they're all under the law of Washington, D.C. But there are also citizens of the several states that have nothing to do with the federal government. And then the third one, which is an interesting case, Tashiro v. Jordan. There is a clear distinction between national citizenship and state citizenship. And today, national citizenship is United States citizenship, meaning federal government and state citizenship is citizenship under article four of the constitution which for those people at this time period because we've gone so far down the path it is literally a herculean effort whoever is the first person to get this done in modern times is a herculean effort because they're claiming to be a citizen of a government that has no employees it only exists on paper and it really only has any authority under Article 4. I, I don't know if authority is the right term, but the only hope of finding support, in my opinion, is in the Supreme Court. 
So it is certainly not, it would be so much easier if the answer was, oh, U.S. citizenship is not a problem. All you got to do is challenge the statutes. Man, challenging statutes compared to what we've been through, Todd, um, trying to unencumber ourselves from the DMV, social security, everything else, if all you had to do was fight these these statutes, it would it, it's so much easier. Yeah, that I mean, is I, I, I was order of magnitude many times over more simple. But I have yet to see one person come back to me, and and I've heard that argument quite a few times. Not one person has ever come back to me and said, "Look, I challenged this statute and I won." Right. Or even even if they lose, for them to have standing to challenge it, because you might get your words words wrong in the way that you, you challenge it. You don't even it. get it aired out. You don't even get it, the merits even heard. Exactly. So the first person, uh, all you got to do is go pick something that even, well, here's another one on the Second Amendment. Justice Thomas in the concurring opinion for uh, Prince of the United States basically is asking somebody to come in and bring the merits of the substantive issues of the Second Amendment in order to have a gun. And that, you know, even Justice Thomas said that the, the, uh, the current federal regulations over firearms may run afoul of the Second Amendment on purely intrastate uh, gun transactions. Well, I so think let's was- see a U.S. citizen do that. I, I don't think they can, but... I think I think it was you, maybe many many episodes ago, brought up. I can't remember if it was you or maybe it was Bad Narek. I can't remember, but the nuance that everybody wants to fight over the Second Amendment with the right to bear arms, where it, you know that, that comma in that in that phrase about with the militia, right? Shall you know the the, the the conjoining of those two issues set aside the whole right to bear arms shall not be infringed with regards to militia. And where in the Constitution does it, in any state Constitution, does it preclude you from owning firearms outside of the militia? And that the Tenth Amendment actually protects your ability to own a firearm without saying anything. Because unless it is expressly written in the Constitution, those rights remain with the people. Absolutely. And it's also important to scrutinize what the militia is. If you're a citizen of a state then you have an obligation to defend that state. That means if you're able-bodied, you are in the militia. There were statutory rules as far as age. I think once you got over 45, you no longer had mandatory militia service. But you still Okay, so so pause on that. You just said there were statutory rules. So see, this is where Tim's going, that statutes do have a function. Even in of the several states, do. yeah, and they they operate in the several states. Absolutely. Okay. In okay. fact, if you look at the uh, uh, the penal code for the state of California, um, let's see if I can find the actual date. But the the penal code for the state of California, it, its code basically says that this code becomes effective on a certain date, eighteen seventy two. That's roughly seven years before California abandoned its Republican form of government and then adopted the administrative form of government. It's still using a code that's dated from that time period, and that code has been changed. I'm I'm certain I, I don't have any uh, I've, something. Maybe you should send a, a research request to the state archives. But California Commercial Code 9307H that said the United States is located in the District of Columbia, I doubt that prior to that adoption of the administrative form of government that that particular portion of the code was in there. So in in a way, Tim is certainly correct that U.S. citizens are not involved um, enough. 
they you could make things a lot better for yourselves by getting involved. I agree with that one hundred percent. But I think that there are limitations on having standing for many codes that you would not be able to um, uh, to say. So, mm-hmm. you know, like with the driver's license application, let's say you go in that you you know you, the statute requires. Well, first off, show me where a U.S. citizen is required to have a driver's license. You'll ne- you'll never find. Anywhere in, in the, at least I've never found, I've poured through the vehicle code. Nobody's ever shown me this, but show me where, what statute says that I have to have a driver's license. Now, because I understand Article 4 citizenship and how, what it means that a U.S. citizen is not a citizen of California, but is a resident of California, then a resident under uh, Vattel's Law of Nations a resident would have to follow whatever rules are in the code that apply to government workers, right? And it openly says government workers, you know, while, while engaged in the course of business for this state, they, that they have to have a driver's license. So you're tying in the uh, uh, Vitell's Law of Nations uh, edict that as a resident in another country, you have to follow the rules of the government, and you're tying that into the code that says if you're in the government, you got to have a driver's license. Well, that's the tie-in that I've made, yeah. And I haven't seen anybody be able to show me in the vehicle code that says if you're, you know, if you're in California, you have to have a driver's license. And so it talk it talks about residency, but there's nothing in there that says a resident has to have a driver's license. So when you went through the 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 uh, sausage grinder and the and the milking parlor you did, and I can't remember was it in Orange or LA County Superior, so-called uh, Superior both. Court? Both. <laughs> I've been through yeah, both. Both. The most recent was Los Angeles. Yeah, in those environments. The question you just posed never even was brought up because the presumption was always that you, because you had originally applied for a driver's license and they had a record of you having that driver's license, there was no need to discuss whether or not you needed one or not. You'd already opted in. Exactly. Am I right on this? A hundred percent. And that's exactly what they relied upon for the prosecution. So there's no more discussion of anything uh, regarding who you are, who you say you are. No no more discussion of the letter I have in front of me, which I just happened to stumble on this morning from February 16th, 2010, uh, from the Department of Motor Vehicles to you with uh, to uh, a Laguna Beach address with no zip code, by the way. Dear Mr. Ive, this is in response to your letter dated January 26, 2010 to Director George Valverde regarding your request to cancel your California driver's license. As requested, your driver's license number has been canceled. Effective February 2nd, 2010, and the card has been destroyed. If you have any questions or need further assistance, please contact a representative of the Department of Motor Vehicles Insurance Unit at blah, 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 issuance unit, issuance unit at phone number. Sincerely, Sherry Miller, Office Technician, Driver License Branch, Licensing Operations Division. So you had already gone through the motions of eliminating that, that nexus, but because they actually lied in this letter and still maintain the record, next time they found you, if you will, accosted you and wanted to ascribe what was on your common law ID as not a first, middle, last name, but a given and family name to the record that they have in the DMV records, they said, oh, that's him. He, he's in the system. Every, all this statutory nonsense applies to him. There's no need to discuss anymore whether or not he's required to have this piece of plastic. He had one at some point in time, even though we lied and told him we canceled it. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's exactly it. Yeah. That that's the basis upon my claim into the Supreme Court is that they're treating me like an employee of the government. And they're treating they're everybody like to, that. That will require them to show either yay, California Vehicle Code 21052 is 
you know, who is required to have a driver's license, and that's only government employees, or they're going to need to find another statutory authority that says, well, not only does it apply to government employees, but anybody who's here has to get a driver's license and, and preserve Article 4 citizenship. At least that's my prediction. But proving the other way around, it, it's so simple um, because it, certainly in some of the chat rooms with, that are, you know, real, uh, uh, you know, real fervent almost, well, they're real fervent followers and, and promoters of LB Bork. Um, I've, I've brought up this, Hey, pick a statute. It, and this was about a month and a half ago, uh, regarding the statute for the automobiles was, Hey, here, here are the court cases that says your private automobile does not have to be licensed. These court cases will stand up to shepherdizing, right? You can go through and look at them and see for yourself that they're still valid law and the portions that you need to cite in those court cases are still valid. So you can go to federal court and say, hey, my automobile doesn't have to be licensed. But by the time you, uh, uh, you get into federal court, and, and these are, again, these are people, sorry, I'm jumping around, but these are people who are saying, oh, I have the right to drive. You know, I'm not driving commercially. I have plates. Um, you know, there's lots of people out there that are making up their own license plates and things like that. And, you know, well, shoot, attack the statute. If the statute says that your car with no license plates is parked on the side of the road and that they just get to take it, then go under a Fourth Amendment that it violates the Fourth Amendment because they're just seizing property with, you know, no warrant, nothing. Um, the, uh, uh, oh yeah, we can talk about insurance, sure. Um, but to finish that up, nobody has yet done that right. and then brought it to my attention. I'll bring that up with Tim too, as well. And, and, I, and I would be, I'll tell you what, if somebody can go in and challenge one of those dr that relies directly on the Fourth Amendment and have standing and get through the whole thing, I will 100% quickly change my stance because that would be a complete game changer as far as making life simple. So you recently tried to get car insurance. Yes. That was fun. So I, I, and now that I have the plastic slave card and everything, I go in to get insurance. Now I was in a car accident, but I was rear ended. It was not my fault. I had nothing to do with the, you know, the, no points on my license. I have no speeding tickets, no moving violations. All my prosecutions were, non-moving violations, right? So they have this thing, and this was something that I thought was really incredible um, coming from the insurance guy that I, that I worked with, which, by the way, he did a really good job uh, fixing a, a pretty bad problem, so I appreciate that. But the cognitive dissonance was really incredible. Since, uh, since I got rid of my license in January of uh, uh, 2010, I, once you get rid of your driver's license, once there's that break of not having just a constant driver's license applicable to you, instantly you no longer become a good driver. And you have to now wait three years to be a good driver again. D does in, that make in sense? The, in the eyes of that? the insurance companies? What's that? In the eyes of the insurance companies? No, in the eyes of the Department of Motor Vehicles. The Department of Motor Vehicles do not give you that good driver dis that good driver designation. As far as in order to be a good driver, you have to have had a license for three years. 
It doesn't matter when you were originally licensed. It's the previous three years to the date that the insurance companies are checking. And, and if you don't qualify for the good driver portion, then what you can do is move into the state insurance fund if you qualify for um, certain other provisions. Well, I was able, my insurance quote went from 360 bucks every six months to $3,700 for six months worth of insurance. <laughs> now, grant, granted, that was with kind of a, you know, a, a, I guess a, the insurance guy called it a premier insurance company. You know, they're, they're big, huge company, everything else. He was able to find me uh, another insurance company that gave me a much better rate but I still don't get the good driver discount that they call in California. And the part that I thought was really interesting was the insurance guy had asked me prior to working out the second quote from this other insurance company, why I just got my license back. Cause he goes, I don't understand your record looks fine. What, what happened? And I said, well, I voluntarily surrendered my license in January of 2010. And I kind of went into the a quick little spiel about article four citizenship and he goes, oh, it sounds like you're arguing semantics to me, right? <laughs> I try to shorten not, it by saying, I just took a hiatus, but go right, on. Yeah. yeah. Well, not two minutes later, I said, I said, you know, it seems kind of crazy. If you look at my record, you can see I have no points on my license, no moving violations, no accidents. I've been driving since I was 16. You know, wouldn't that be a good, good driver in the eyes of the insurance company? And he's the one that went into, well, we have to go off of the legal definition of good driver of what the DMV says. We can't go off of your actual record. And I said, choose oh, not that to. sounds like you're they... arguing semantics to me. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yes. That's smart. Anyway, he, yeah. he, he actually, oh, the other thing that was interesting was he asked me if I own um, a website called free inhabitant. Oh, and you know, that's the website. Have you seen the free inhabitant no. website that references my exempt plates? No, I do not. Um, I, well, so if you yeah. do a name search with me, like just a quick Google search and type in Corey, Ibe free inhabitant, I think it is. You'll yeah. find a website. Um, let's see if it comes on. Uh, well, I don't see it on the first page of Google's anyway, there's a website called freeinhabitant.org or something like that. And it has a copy of my uh, registration for the Mercedes with the California exempt plates. And then it goes through this whole story that a man figured out. It, it's basically complete propaganda with the wrong information. Because the, the basis upon which I got those license plates had nothing to do with commerce at all. It was who owns the birth record. That's what the whole basis was. And this website puts up false information. I've contacted them a dozen times, written them. I've told them that, hey, this is wrong. I'm the guy on there, and I can tell you that your whole story there is wrong. And they won't change it. So um, uh, anyway, the, the guy said, yeah, that, that whole thing about commercial stuff has been proven over and over again to not be valid. And I tried to explain to him that that's not, you know, the, the whole basis of free inhabitant was not my basis for getting the plates. And it was just too difficult for his brain to process as a, you know, just regular U S citizen. Who's like, why wouldn't you want to have a driver's license? Do you want a whole bunch of people driving around without a driver's license? Oh my God. Right. And my response was, 
if if you've got people driving around who kill people, which happens all the time, you know, I mean, you have people all the time get in car accidents, everything else. The license doesn't make you drive safer. In fact, I mean, Todd, you and I have discussed how um, now with that ID card, it's a free pass. We drive much more aggressively oh, than without the it's license. It's incredible. It's ridiculous. Right. Um, so what I'm hearing here is that Cal- in the, in the uh, administrative division called California, the, the federal division called the state of California, uh, in the DMV, their ruling, their their rules or their practice is good driver status has nothing to do with whether or not you hit somebody or had a speeding violation or moving violation. It has to do with whether or not you kept up your slave card with regards to renewals. Exactly. That's it. That's what it is. It has nothing to do with your behavior behind the wheel. It's everything right. to do with did you pay the VIG to get this effing piece of plastic? Yeah. And the insurance guy also created a situation where he could show somebody is really not a good driver. I mean, they're, they're not a good driver, but they can get the good driver discount. And somebody like me, who is a good driver, you know, has a great record as far as safety is concerned, um, can't sure. get the good driver there's, there's discount. There's a workaround. Sure. Of course there is. Yeah. Incredible. Just as long as you're paying that DMV fee, everything relates to that DMV. I mean, they are just this giant vacuum cleaner of funds and constitutional rights. So, Well, you're listening to Agenda 31, episode 125. Uh, this is Corey Ibe and Todd McGreevy coming at you. And uh, I want to – Jesse Anderson, a friend of the show, did some of our cover art, uh, sent me a link to a Lou Rockwell piece written by Paul Craig Roberts on March 15th. I'll put it in the show notes. Federal courts say foreigners, not U.S. citizens, are entitled to due process. The U.S. Constitution applies to U.S. citizens, and the amendments known as the Bill of Rights guarantee due process as a protection of U.S. citizens' civil liberties. That's the theory, but not the practice. Now, I don't agree with that assertion, but that's what Paul Craig Roberts is writing, and it's what what most people presume to be accurate, is what he just asserted. Um, He says that's the theory, but not the practice. So this immigration stuff is bringing to bear the the hypocrisy of, of U.S. citizenship, in my view, and I think this article points it out, and that's why Jesse shared it. It goes on to say, Trump's travel ban applies to non-U.S. citizens, primarily to refugees from the Bush-Obama bombings of numerous Muslim countries. Some of these refugees whose families and countries were destroyed by American troops could harbor feelings of revenge against Americans. The Ninth Circuit panel's injunction against Trump's executive order gives the Constitution's protections of U.S. citizens to non-citizens, apparently on the basis of due process and religious discrimination arguments. The panel of judges said that Trump's executive order, quote, runs contrary to the fundamental structure of our constitutional democracy, end quote. So it goes on and so forth, and it's, it's worth reading, and I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. But, I, I you know, I, unfortunately, the Paul Craig Roberts of the world will add him to the list, Corey, of people we want to wake up. And say, yeah. you know, there's a whole other angle here, guys. You're you're hovering. You're you're close to the, you're 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 tinkering around the edges. You're you're getting close. Man, I think I'm yeah, overmodulating. I mean, Sorry. The, to me, to be able to articulate that there's no difference between national citizenship and state citizenship is has yet to have been done. I mean, lots of people talk about it, but there are so many court cases that have been affirmed. Um, you know, especially Tashiro v. Jordan, there is a clear distinction between national citizenship and state citizenship, and that the rights between the rights secured at the national level are very different, and the obligations are very different than the rights secured at the state level. And 
you know, like getting a driver's license, why would you have to say that your presence in the United States is authorized under federal law? I, I mean, it, it, that, that is, that alone prevents you from holding office in one of the several states. Because you, you can have no connection to the federal government, and uh, with few exceptions, like you could be a postmaster for your local town or something like that, and still hold office in the state legislature. But um, the, uh, uh, the, the intent and the way the government operates, which is why Social Security, in my opinion, it, one of the reasons why it's so insidious, same thing with the driver's license, same thing with voter registration, is that you basically have to say, I'm federal, I'm federal. But once you do that, you can no longer hold office. There's no way for you to legally hold office in one of the several states based on the constitutions of the several states. And a quick little side note, uh, two days ago, I was in an electronics store and had a conversation with a guy who claimed he didn't tell me it was obvious because he was wearing a gun, but he was in some sort of law enforcement. And I, I brought him real quick to the idea of the 1849 government versus the 1879 government. And he said, well, we repealed that constitution and now we operate off the 1879 government. And I said, that's great. Have you ever looked at what it takes? The original constitution says how to repeal it. And there is no evidence that it was repealed. So I asked him, would you be able to provide any evidence for that? And uh, he said, all you got to do is contact the state. Of course, they repealed it. You know, like, that's a stupid question. Of course they repealed it. He wasn't going to look it up at all, had no interest in looking it up. But I have. I've contacted the state legislature. There's no evidence that they repealed the original Constitution according to the way that Constitution needs to be repealed. It was replaced by an administrative division of the 14th Amendment, which is there to protect governments, the state governments that stop running on their own, like in the South right after the Civil War. Oh, no, we, we covered that. I'll try and find a link to that episode. Uh, it was extensive, and it included just a en masse new election, just overhaul everything. With I mean, the incumbents in the several states, just the governor declared, like, martial law, new elections for everything. We're doing it all new federal. It's over. Right, right. And, and, and James uh, Getman uh, in Iowa, a friend of the show, he's researched that very matter in Iowa, and there's no evidence that the first Constitution was revoked or repealed either. So, yeah, and that the, you know. the problem with the 14th Amendment is you don't need um, – obviously, that's one option is to repeal the original Constitution and then replace it. But if you're the federal government, that's not what you want to have happen. What you want is to get the people to believe – and when I say what you want, there's a competition between the federal government and the states. There's this constant fighting between the federal government trying to increase its power and the states trying to maintain their power. And a little jig in the system or a little juke that the federal government was able to do via the 14th Amendment was, hey, what if we trick everybody in the several states to just abandon their government? Now we can come in and run everything under the 14th Amendment. Uh, that Legally, I think that's a theory that holds water. If, if the several states stop sending representatives to the District of Columbia, then the 14th Amendment provides authority for the federal government to send representatives by power of the federal government and impose that, that uh, representation on the government in order to maintain the, the government of the several states. And you, I have yet to find any case where a state 
had its offices just automatically changed because of the 14th Amendment. There was always some sort of pretend legislation, pretend election, pretend something that would get people to go, oh, okay, now we're operating off of this because we voted it in. When in fact, at least in California for sure, the procedure to replace the California Constitution, there's no evidence that that was followed. Well, I, I, I appreciate you uh, uh, pairing with uh, Tim uh, as me as his proxy because you know, he, he's, he's equally as concerned about these issues as we are. He just has a different uh, uh, mindset regarding the, the status. And, yeah, um, well, I think that's quickly, that can be quickly fleshed out. And Tim has definitely got the mindset for it. He's got that, uh, that critical analysis that he can do that pick a very, very simple statute that something that may be inconsequential, it's not going to create a whole bunch of hoopla, it won't affect you at work or anything like that. Pick something that is fairly minor um, but requires a direct access to the uh, Bill of Rights in order to declare that unconstitutional, write it up and submit it. It's, uh, I would guarantee that the, well, I'd be very confident that the district court, wherever, uh, in whatever district is uh, producer Tim's, would have a civil cover sheet, and there's going to be a box on there that just says you're challenging the constitutionality of a state statute. Yeah, no and standing. write it up and see if you've got uh, standing. So I, I brought this uh, clip up a couple episodes ago. One of the uh, people in the noagendastream.com uh, chat room uh, sent me a link to this after our episode several episodes ago about the uh, war on the... Uh, uh, spi- what was the word we used? The war on spirituality or... Um, yeah. yeah, I think it was. Yeah, and, and the, the concept that, that this, uh, uh, this, this new world order, this, this administrative overlay, the, the U.S. citizenship, the... Overlords, it is a war on the mind. I mean, there's info wars. There's, you know, Alex Jones talks about the war on the mind, the, the war on spirituality. Well, the DOD back in 2005 had a uh, session, and I am this, this, I'll put a, I'll put the embed the video from YouTube in here, uh, talking about a vaccine to be used to inoculate people, uh, to uh, uh, disavow them of their religious beliefs. And they're focusing on using this on uh, Afghanis, potentially. Check this out. Uh We have individuals who are religious fundamental. Excuse me. On the left over here, we have individuals who are religious fundamentalists, religious fanatics. And this is the expression, uh, RT-PCR, real-time PCR uh, expression of the VMAT2 gene. Over here, we have individuals. So, so, so let me complete. So over here, we have uh, individuals who are not particularly uh, fundamentalists, not particularly religious. And you can see there's a, a much reduced uh, expression of, of this particular gene, the, the VMAT2 uh, gene. Uh, another evidence that that supports our, our hypothesis for the development of, of, of this uh, approach. Uh, so what you're what suggesting you see? here is by, by, by spreading this virus, we're going to eliminate individuals from donning on a bomb vest and going into a market and blowing up the market. So our, our hypothesis is that these are fanatical people, uh, that they have overexpression of the VMAT2 gene and that by vaccinating them against this, will eliminate this behavior. Uh, so we have some, some very, very... 
I would I would counsel listeners that are uh, interested in the topic to look up the word behavior inside your county government uh, sustainability plans. That uh, you know, Agenda Thirty One is a riff off of Agenda Twenty One. Agenda Twenty One is the global to local initiative to curb behavior under the auspices of uh, sustainability and social justice and economic justice and all the climate change nonsense that goes on. And behavior is a critical thing that government wants to curb. Of course, this is, in our view, totally uh, uh, appropriate inside the administrative uh, district of Columbia, where they can be as insane to the chattel, the man or other animals, as they want to be. That's why we're averting Article 4 citizenship. But this type of approach, and this is old. This is from 2005. This is 12 years old. Who knows where this has come, this, this approach to changing people's behavior about their religion. Think about that. It goes on. A remarkable date in this next slide. Uh, here we have two uh, brain scans. These are fMRIs. Uh, these are two different individuals with different levels of expression of EMAT2 uh, on top. Uh, is an individual who's a religious fanatic and individual, and we've repeated this numerous times, that, that uh, has uh, high levels of EMAT2. Now, um, this... In- Fascinating, Corey, that you could measure somebody's brain for VMAT2 and say, oh, they're religiously fundamental. Yeah, that, I'm sure that's pretty interesting on how they've made that connection. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, can, I, I imagine they might come up with a vaccine for those that want to aver Article 4. Eventually. Oh, yeah. They, it's called public school. So down here, who had low levels of the VMAT2 gene, this individual would uh, self-describe as, as, as not particularly religious. In, in each case, uh, these individuals were, were read a religious text. Uh, this individual uh, light lit up um, the, the right middle frontal gyrus uh, shown here. And uh, that's a part of the brain that's associated with theory of mind. Uh, it's a part of the brain that, that uh, has to do with intents and, and beliefs and, and desires. Uh, in contrast, in marked contrast, here's an individual who would uh, not particularly uh, self-describe as, as religious. And when they're read a religious text, <clears throat> what you see is that this part of the brain called the anterior insula lights up. This is a part of the brain that's associated with with disgust or displeasure on hearing something. Uh, so you're suggesting I and, take a CT scan with me when I'm uh, evaluating people to determine whether I put a bullet in their head? So, so um, Did you hear that? I, I did not catch that part. He said something about a bullet in the head? Yeah. CT scan with me when I'm uh, evaluating people to determine whether I put a bullet in their head? So are you suggesting I take a CT scan of somebody to determine if I put a bullet in their head or not? Oh, God. Okay. The determined part I wasn't catching. Got yeah. it. Yeah. So he's a soldier saying, Hey, am I going to take this with These me are, out? The, 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 you'll, I'll, there'll be a link in the show notes to the whole four and a half minute video, but there's a presenter at the front of the room and there's, uh, you know, le- levels of like classroom, you know, seating, if you will, around it. And then there's like five or six people in the seating. And this is a guy who's questioning it, asking this question. And purportedly, presumably, this is all, all members of the Department of Defense in this room. I'm not sure. I, I've done enough research on it to know exactly, but here. Uh, so you're suggesting I take and, a CT scan with me when I'm uh, evaluating people to determine whether I put a bullet in their head? So, so um, the, the data that I'm presenting here uh, supports uh, the, the concept that, that we're proposing. 
Uh, and I think that uh, we would not propose to do uh, CT scans or fMRIs on, on individuals out in the hinterlands of, of Afghanistan. The virus would immunize against this VMAT2 gene, and that would, would have the effect that you see here, which is it's essentially to turn a fanatic into a, a, a normal person. And we think that will have major... We just need everybody to be normal, Corey. Why can't you just right, be or, normal? I, I'm surprised they're not invoking, you know, running a, uh, a tamping iron through somebody's head like Phineas P. Gage in order to change behavior. Are you familiar with Phineas Gage? No, it sounds like I need to be. Well, I mean, this is something because, you know, I, I enjoy listening to videos and stuff about the brain and how the brain works and all these different things that affect the brain. Like right now, all of our listeners, you can affect their brains without them realizing it by telling them not to think about a pink elephant running out of the speaker that you're listening to right now. Yeah, don't and think what about happens? that. Yeah. Just don't, don't course, think about so, it. Yeah, just don't think about that pink elephant jumping out of the speaker. It just, it, you know, you can't, you can't stop it. In other words, you do think about it. So our, our brains only process positive messages. They, it doesn't process negative messages, which is why we say, please don't remain standing when we want to tell somebody to sit down. Um, <laughs> Phineas P. Gage was a guy working on a railroad, and he was using a, um, a tamping iron, which is a big, long iron pole and I, I think it was to put dynamite down into a hole or something like that. Anyway, it it went off and it went through his face, took out the pretty much the entire left lobe of his brain. But he lived, right? And this was back in, I think, 1840, something like that. But he was no longer, to all of his friends, he was no longer Phineas P. Gage. He, they said he just became somebody else. Later in life, he began to resemble the man. Um, I think he lived for 15 years or so after that accident, but he began to resemble the same man again. But uh, when I hear this about how, oh, well, this area of the brain controls this and all these different different things. Well, you look at people that have had uh, brain injuries where portions of their brain have just been simply destroyed, like Phineas P. Gage, and the brain rearranges its wiring. And, um, wow. and so it, it's a... I don't know. I don't know. I may be off on a tangent here, but it is an interesting read. Uh, Phineas, I, I can't remember how to say I know it's a funny Find name. a link. Put it in the show notes. Okay. All right. I'm gonna, there's about a minute left on here. The effect that you see here, which is it's essentially to turn against this VMAT2 gene, and that would, would have the effect that you see here, which is it's essentially to turn a fanatic into a, a, a normal person. And we think that will have major effects in the Middle East. How would you suggest that this is going to be dispersed? The aerosol? Well, so, so the, the present uh, plan and the tests that we've done so far um, have used uh, uh, respiratory viruses, uh, such as flu or, or uh, rhinoviruses. And uh, we believe that that's a satisfactory way to get the exposure of the largest uh, part of the population. Most of us, of course, have, ha have been exposed to both of those viruses. And, and we're, we're quite confident that, that this will be a, a, a very successful uh, approach. This is fascinating. What's the name of this proposal? Yeah, so, so the name of this project is FunVax, which is the vaccine for religious fundamentalism. And you have a proposal already? The proposal uh, has just been submitted, and I think that the data that I have shown you today would, would support uh, the, the development of, of this project, and we think it has great promise. 
Now I need to go look this up, Corey. We could be getting gooned pretty heavily. This well, is just I'm, one video. I just video. typed in Funvax, and uh, there's a, I haven't looked at any of this stuff, but it, it basically is uh, uh, Funvax. That's interesting. I wonder if this is true or not. Yeah, I, 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 and uh, Sir Bemrose on the uh, No Agenda stream, that's his handle there, sent me that link. I believe that was him. Maybe not. I can't remember who he sent it to me, but uh, I, I will... I will uh, promise to do a little more research on that i just thought it was fascinating the, the video the way it's all set up it's all it looks so official and all this stuff so anybody can fake stuff you know so i don't want to be you know guilty of proliferating fake news uh one of the biggest fake news things going on in my view right now Corey, my, my biggest pet peeves because when you're traveling like i have been lately you listen to a lot of the radio satellite radio and the biggest distraction going on is the Russians have hacked our democracy. Oh, I just, I am so sick and tired of hearing about this crap and the nonsense of collusion. You know, who did, did the Trump administration or Trump people collude with the Russians? Well, you know what? They may have spoken to him and, and what is never brought up, not once, not once is ever brought up. What if the collusion was to not go to war? Right. What if the collusion was to not take over the Assad regime and start a war in Syria and start Third World War III, which Hillary would have done? What if that was the collusion? You know, they never yeah. talk about what they colluded about. All right, and so that's its own little thread with regards to the to the distraction of the of the month. But then there's this whole concept that that uh, that it's such a terrible thing to influence an election. And, and never mind that, that to date I have yet to see the evidence that the Russians or Russian people hacked the DNC. That's yet to be proven. What I think w when you boil it down to the empirical nature of the hack proper that occurred is that it was done with a script that was written in Russian. Right. 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 Let, let alone never mind that Podesta's password was password. All right. Yeah. Don't don't bring right. that up. Don't talk about any of that. Just that there's or the, or the actual content of the emails. Yeah. Don't don't you know? Heaven forbid there be a discussion about you know that that the Democratic National Committee was screwing Bernie Sanders you know hard. All right. Now don't don't bring any of that up. And, and so let's go have five hours of hearings on on Capitol Hill over cybersecurity and all this crap. Right. Um. So th there was a, 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 a I'm trying to think which viewer sent this to me or which listener. I'll think of it here in a second. Uh, oh, it was actually Angelos on the Super Liberty Meetup list I'm on. NPR, of all people, had a piece about the glass houses that we live in with regards to meddling in elections. Well, yeah. This is hardly the first time a country has tried to influence the outcome of another country's election. The U.S. has done it, too. By one expert's count, more than 80 times worldwide between 1946 and 2000. That expert is Dove Levin of Carnegie Mellon University. I asked him to tell me about one election where U.S. intervention likely made a difference in the outcome. One example of that was our intervention in uh, Serbia or Yugoslavia in the 2000 election there. Slobodan Milosevic was running for re-election, and we didn't want him to uh, stay in power there due to his tendency you know, to disrupt the Balkans and his human rights violations. So we intervened in various ways for the opposition candidate, Vojislav Kustunica, and we gave funding to the opposition, and we gave them training and campaigning aid. And according to my estimate, that assistance was crucial in enabling uh, the opposition to win. 
How often are these interventions public versus covert? Well, it's uh, basically there's about one third of them are uh, public and two third of them are covert. In other words, they're not known uh, to the voters in the target before the election. Your count does not include coups, attempts at regime change. It, it sounds like depending on the definitions, the tally could actually be much higher. Well, you're right. I don't count and discount covert coup d'etats like the United States did in Iran in 1953 or in Guatemala in 1954. I only talk when the United States is trying directly to influence an election for one of the sides. Other types of interventions, I don't uh, discuss. But if we would include those, then, of course, the number could be larger. Yeah. How often do other countries, like Russia, for example, try to alter the outcome of elections as compared to the United States? Well, um, for my data set, the United States is the most common user of this technique. Russia or the Soviet Union since 1945 has used it half as much. My estimate has been 36 cases between uh, 1946 to 2000. We know also that the Chinese have used this technique. Um, the Venezuelans, when the late Hugo Chavez was still in power in Venezuela, and other countries. The U.S. is arguably more vocal than any other country about trying to promote democracy and democratic values around the world. Does this strike you as conflicting with that message? It depends upon if we are assisting pro-democratic side. It could be like in the case of Slobodan Milosevic that I talked about earlier. I believe that that could be helpful for democracy. If it helps uh, less nicer candidates or parties, then naturally it can be less helpful. Obviously, your examination. Less nicer. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That, what an what a awesome <laughs> distinction. <laughs> for democracy. If it helps uh, less nicer candidates or parties, then naturally it can be less helpful. Obviously, your examination of 20th century attempts to influence elections uh, does not involve hacking because computers were not widespread until recently. In your yeah. view, is technology, the way that we saw in the November election, dramatically changing the game? Or is this just the latest evolution of an effort that has always used whatever tools are available? I would say it's more uh, the latter. I mean, uh, the Russians or the Soviets before and frequently uh, did these type of interventions, just, you know, without uh, cyber hacking tools. You know, the old style uh, people meeting in the park in secret and giving out and getting information and things like that, so to speak. Dove Levin is with the Institute for Politics and Strategy at Carnegie Mellon University. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. So I'm surprised that that even ran on NPR. Uh WikiLeaks, yeah. WikiLeaks tweeted about it, and uh, one of the senators, uh, Tom, Thomas uh, Tillis, uh, spoke about it uh, in, a, in a hearing, which I have a seven-minute clip, which I'm not going to play. I'll put it in the show notes on, on during a five-hour cybersecurity hearing. Maybe we'll play it next episode. There's some other nuances discussed, including the dialogue of making the political election system part of a critical infrastructure, you know, under the the, the rule of, of homeland security. Um, just more, just just fomenting nonsense is what's going on out there, and just just the the people are so as the as the Matrix said, inured, you know, inured to to reality of you know, oh, there our democracy got hacked Be, because why again? Because the 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 double dealing, underhanded, uh, criminal Democratic National Committee got exposed or by by a script that was written in Russian. I mean, right. all of a sudden, you know, all hell is breaking loose and we all have to be very afraid. Really? 
and, and during episode 113 of Agenda 31, which goes back to, um, uh, what date was this? This was back in late December. It was December 31st that I posted this. I put a link uh, to the cover of Time magazine uh, from uh, July 15th, 1996, uh, Rescuing Boris, the secret story of how four U.S. advisors used polls, focus groups, negative ads, and all the other techniques of American campaigning to help Boris Yeltsin win. And it's the cover story of Time magazine. Yeah. I mean, this is not new information. And, and these pundits, I, I got to give NPR credit for bringing this guy on the air, okay? I mean, the, the National Propaganda Radio, I, I don't know what got into him to bring that out. I, I'm amazed. Oops. I don't, you know, I guess it's getting the, the hypocrisy can only get so deep before they start suffocating themselves inside NPR. Potentially, I guess there is a conscience somewhere inside that that Leviathan. Uh, but I just when when I hear people bring this up in conversation, I just I, I don't know how I have to come to a, a pleasant way to to just eradicate this nonsense. It's just ridiculous. So I think we need to wrap up, Corey. Is there anything else you want to share today? Well, um, just I sent over a link to you to reiterate the uh, a great way as far as finding statutes unconstitutional. Uh, Justia, I'm going to put this in the chat room right now for those that are there. There is a list of uh, state laws that were held unconstitutional. It's an extensive list, and it and this list predates the Fourteenth Amendment. Yes, it does. So, Look at that. Right? So That's you can go all the way through, starting all the way back in 1809. There awesome. are statutes in the original republics. And yes, you have to be careful because those politicians will create statutes. Even in the original republic, it's not a panacea. But in the original republic, they can create a statute that's unconstitutional. And it has been overturned. And at this point, the only people who were going into court would be well, I, I would imagine the people who are, are doing this are Article Four citizens. They wouldn't have been foreigners, but there was no other form of citizenship. It was only a state citizen. Well, and we'll have to look so at this because I'm, I'm scrolling through. I'm only halfway through the page, Corey, and I'm getting yeah. to the year 1948. Okay. So, like, just this, a, a random one. Uh, S-I-P-U-E-L, Sipuel v. Board of Regents, 1948. Oklahoma constitutional and statutory provisions barring Negroes from the University of Oklahoma Law School violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Yeah, there you go. Well, so the uh, Oyama v. California, California yep. alien land law, forbidding aliens ineligible for American citizenship to acquire own. You, know, you can see the effect the 14th Amendment has had. But could, the question is, and this is the you know this is the dollar two ninety eight question for our time. It is the to me one of the greatest political adventures any American can have, and that is to transition back to just Article Four citizenship and then challenge these statutes because the statutes are still there. If if uh, if you're an Article Four citizen and the California, well, let's say we, I win. Let's, let's say you go to the Supreme Court and I win. They close down the driver's license account. Um, I have no connection to the federal government. And now I've got a car with no license plates on it. Guess what happens next? Now I got to deal with, if I, it, you know, hopefully there would be a whole bunch of people that would jump on board and realize the advantage of it and the opportunity to be able to play the game at a level that, you know, just hasn't been played in a long time. 
but that is to go back and get all these different statutes that are that are unconstitutional declared unconstitutional because now you have standing to go in as an article 4 citizen i don't think a us citizen can get the statute in california that says any automobile that's on any street without license plates can be towed just regardless it doesn't matter if it's parked legally or not if it doesn't have a license plate the police can tow it and that would be a statute that you'd have to deal with once you're an Article 4 citizen. I dig but it. But I don't think a U.S. citizen would have standing to get that particular statute declared unconstitutional. Are you engaged in a political adventure or are you engaged in semantics? Therein lies the question. Yeah, well, the, I mean, the, the opportunities to put the smack down on government once you get a win and, you know, you're going up against... Uh, somebody who is going to aver Article 4 citizenship and go into court, it means you are a adversary to the entire government. Your team isn't on the field. You're the only one. And there's every government employee who is standing against you. That is, you know, that, that is the reality. When you are averring Article 4 citizenship in this system, you are standing up to every single government employee in existence. I because wonder if they that all operate that. Way. I wonder if that guy you ran into the electronics store uh, will actually go research anything to do with. Did you give him an Agenda Thirty One card? I did. Yes. Oh, good. Good. Excellent. Well, hopefully, I, I, that means I need to find a, a link to that episode where we talked about the uh, California. Uh, what was the term we're looking for here? Repealing the uh, Constitution of eighteen forty nine. Yeah. Uh, all right. I'll put a link to that in there. Well, everybody, thank you for tuning in this week to episode number 125 of Agenda 31. You can li listen to this playback on the No Agenda stream at noagendastream.com on Sundays right after the deep state media assassination by Curry and Dvorak, the No Agenda show hosts. They're on there now live. They go, through they go from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Central on the noagendastream.com with the No Agenda show, and we have the benefit of being played back right after that, so you can tune in then as well at noagendastream.com. We encourage you to go to our website, agenda31.org, and subscribe for the comp to the complimentary blog there, and that way you'll get notifications of things going on with the site and the show. And if you make a donation, uh, large or small, uh, medium or, or uh, recurring, uh, small or big, you will also have access to uh, the common law ID pages, uh, special videos Corey's created, uh, court filings and things like that. And I think next episode we'll have on our, uh, on our agenda for discussion, uh, should, should we or should we not be uh, uh, publicizing our strategies, Corey? Uh, you know, if we're, if we're going to actually hold GovCo accountable, are we doing ourselves a disservice by even putting out there in the public what we're up to? Which That's is a great a, conversation. Yeah, which will be a good one for next week. Until then, everybody, remind, keep reminding yourself, what is your strategy to make a difference? All of yours will learn, and all of mine will see. They will see, and they will learn. It is good.
director Clapper has to leave in about 20 minutes, or we'll enforce the crime, the time, um, the crime, the time. Well, yeah, we're not really a free country. I mean, come on. Search, share, subscribe, and support at Agenda31.org.